1888. <clears throat> Hopefully you already know something about it. I, I wondered whether this was um, this would be a, a new enough or interesting enough or if this would just be like ancient history to everybody here, but we'll, we'll take a stab at it and see what, what we can do. I like stories, and so if you'll pardon me, I'll just basically stand here and tell stories. How's that? Um, I never really grew up. That's one big advantage I have, so I like stories. Um, two young men, young in the relative sense of the term, E.J. Wagner was 38, A.T. Jones was 33, they were young men. Um, they were, in fact, very young men in uh, the estimation of some. Um, they really hit their stride in Adventist history in the mid-1880s when they became the co-editors of the Signs of the Times out in uh, California here. They were not similar. They were almost diametric opposites. Jones was taller kind of angular. He was a frontiersman. He'd been a sergeant in the army before he became an Adventist. Uh, he was stationed at Fort Walla Walla up in Washington State and a traveling Adventist evangelist came through and held a series of meetings and he uh, accepted the message. Uh, Jones Jones was your, your archetypical 1800s self-made man type of guy. He, he, wasn't, he didn't take a lot of nonsense off of anybody. And he had the blessing of the Lord that fitted him for that uh, position. It's just not fair. He had a, a photographic memory. I could wish. I suppose all the med students could too. Um, he um, once, just after 1888, and um, it was either December of 88 or January, say, of 89, I don't remember which, he was testifying before Congress because they'd, they'd actually they'd come up with what they called the Blair Bill, and it was the Sunday Law type of thing. And he was up there, you know, at the podium, waxing eloquent, and, and somebody uh, somebody interrupted him and, and said, "That's not right," you know, something. I don't remember what the point was. And Jones just stood there and he thought for a second. He said, I believe, Senator, or Congressman, whoever it was, he said, I believe if you will turn to Millman's History of the Church since the 5th century, page 52, on the second paragraph, it says, <laughs> and then he read this thing off. It's just not fair. Um, and he could do that. He could do that uh, with vast amounts of material. Wagner, on the other hand, was shorter, not as uh, not as tall, not as skinny. Um, he was uh, he was not the rough-hewn type. He was actually a doctor, an M.D., graduated from Bellevue Medical College, which was top flight back in those days. Still ranks fairly high, from what I understand. Um, but he really didn't practice. He'd uh, found other interests and had become a, a minister and an editor by 1885. Uh, during their time out in California, these two young men um, developed an affinity for one another, which continued for years. Um, it's kind of a, it's almost one of those spooky things. Um, they were constantly thinking alike and finishing each other's sentences and this sort of thing, you know. Um, they did not all that much in their, their actual day-to-day -day work at the Signs of the Times. They didn't, they didn't actually work together all that much. 
but um, they were together and, and they would also teach at Healdsburg College and then they would preach at these different uh, churches around and whatnot. And there are a number of stories of how um, Jones, Jones recounts some of these stories. I think it's a letter in 1921, if I remember right. He, he wrote a letter after, long after he'd left the church. But he wrote this letter to uh, an Adventist minister, I forget who. Um, but he, he tells how he, he came in one morning, you know, and he says, well, who spoke at whatever church he hadn't been at? You know, that, that's how. He says, who spoke? And he says, well, it was Brother Wagner. Oh, yeah. What was his topic? Mm, same as yours last week. Oh, really? No. What was his verse? Same. Well, what line of thought did he develop? Same. Okay. And then years later, A.T. Jones, well, let's see how many years later, would have been, well, not that many years later, I guess, but you know, in the 1890s, um, when Wagner was in Europe, um, I think it was uh, G.B. Starr, if I remember right, was in Battle Creek and listened to Jones preaching in the tabernacle and then hopped on the train on Sunday morning and went to the East Coast or wherever, caught the ship across however long it took and landed in London. And on a Friday afternoon, the Sabbath, he went to church and heard Wagner giving virtually the exact same message. <laughs> and they said, when they came out and they shook his hand, he says, a very nice sermon, brother. It would have been fresher to us if we hadn't heard the whole thing last week in Battle Creek from A.T. Jones. Yeah. So these guys were, you know, they had this kind of a, you know, you read those quantum physics things, you know, where you, you mess with a particle here and it does the same thing over there, you know, and that was kind of that relationship. Kind of interesting guys. Well, in the course of their studies and their teaching and their preaching, they came up with slightly variant ideas. And this is what uh, forms the crux of, of the beginning part of our story. A.T. Jones was a historian. Um, he liked history. He read lots of it. He wrote lots of it. Um, and um, he decided to take on the, uh, the, the task of researching the ten horns in Daniel. Um, the resident authority in the church on the issue was Uriah Smith, who had written thoughts on Daniel and thoughts on Revelation, of course. And um, Uriah Smith said, yeah, that's a great idea. Do that, please. That'll be an interesting thing. We've, we've just kind of carried the list down from William Miller, and, and you know, but it's, it's a good thing. Well, Jones went after it, and fairly quickly, I guess, and fairly conclusively, realized that one item, one member, or one tribe on the list of ten didn't really fit in the time period. The Huns. The Huns, just historically speaking, they weren't where they were supposed to be at the right time in order to be one of the ten horns. So he says, that's no good. Now we've only got nine horns. He said, well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? But he looked around and... Voila, there, unnoticed, hiding in the woodwork, was another tribe, <laughs> the Alamanni. And so he said, well, let's check this out, check it all out. They fit, they were in the right time period, the right place, etc., etc., etc. Works for me, he said. Brother Smith didn't much like that. It bothered him. He said, what are we going to do? Hey, what do you, what do you think? We're going to change all our, our published works? take out Huns and put in Alamanni? Forget it. We start changing things. We start you know, saying we make mistakes. People are going to say, yeah, they made a mistake on the Huns, man. They probably made a mistake on the Sabbath, too. Oh, listen to those guys. This became an issue. 
While that was becoming an issue, Alec Wagner had uh, been doing some studies of his own in the book of Galatians, and he came to the conclusion that the law spoken of in Galatians was in fact the moral law, as opposed to the ceremonial law, which is what the, the position had been taken by Brother George Butler and a number of other uh, good Adventist brethren. <clears throat> Wagner taught this point of view in his classes, and in... Um, early 1886, he published it in the Signs of the Times. That was a mistake. One of the things that you learn from history, Adventist history, is that there was only one John Burden. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure he made his mistakes too, but, um, but I don't know anybody else that has a track record like he had. And, and uh, Wagner, Wagner had, uh, had erred in publishing this. And um, it, it did not work out well. It uh, attracted the attention of the brethren back in Battle Creek. They were uh, rather concerned. Um, when, uh, and, and you know, tempers rose, became an issue. Um, Wagner, well, let's see, there, there was a general conference in 86, and when they walked into the, uh, the conference, they were handed a booklet entitled, The Law in Galatians. Is it the moral law or that law peculiarly Jewish? They were in there really long titles in those days. And um, this was Butler's book, which basically took Wagner's material and, and you know, attacked it point by point. Never bothered to mention his name, but yeah, come on, you know, I mean, it's it's like, how dumb do I have to be to not know who he's writing about? You know, this is a, this is a, a very thinly veiled secret. Okay, and. Uh, <coughs> Uh, every delegate got one of these as they came to the general conference session, you see. Now, bear in mind that conference sessions in those years were not what they are today. You know, I think in 86, well, let's see, there had been a big jump in 83, but anyhow, in 86, I, I think there were maybe like 110 delegates, something like that. You know, it was, it was not, they didn't need the Hoosier Dome or whatever. Uh, to, to pack them all in, let's put it that way. And um, so they, they passed out these books, and then Butler pushed the issue a notch farther. And he spun off a subcommittee from the, uh, from the general conference session as a whole. They formed a subcommittee, and Butler wanted a vote to censure the Signs of the Times for having run these articles. Well, the vote came out five to four in favor of the motion to censure. Now, I don't know how many committees you've been drug into yet, but trust me, there's no real value in taking a subcommittee with a five to four split and going back to the main, main body and saying, well, we were just about evenly divided. <laughs> that's just a mess. You can't do that, you know? So <clears throat> Butler says, well, not, let's not do that. Let's not, no, no, no. So they, they re-approached it and they said, let's, let's pass a motion stating that no one should publish any views that are not, um, that have not been previously espoused by Adventists until they have been 
mm, authorized, shall we say, by the brethren of long experience. Now, exactly who and what and how that, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. But anyway, he got that vote passed with a stronger margin. I don't know exactly what the vote was. And yeah, they made it through the uh, they made it through the, the general conversation. Ellen White was in Europe at the time. She wrote Butler a letter, and she said, "I was shown <laughs> what's been going on over there." And she said, evidently echoing a letter which he had written to her, which I, I haven't read. But she says, I can say with you, my brother, it was a terrible conference. For slightly different reasons, however. <clears throat> um, she was concerned. Now this is, this is of, of significance because this is all the immediate predecessor of, of the 1888 conference. She wrote... Um, well, let's see. Yeah, here we go. She said, The Spirit of God has not had a controlling influence in this meeting. The Spirit that controlled the Pharisees is coming in among this people. Now, just think for a minute. What was the, what's the Spirit that controlled the Pharisees? I mean, we could say, you know, demonic spirit or something. But, you know, what are the Pharisees known for? Self righteousness. Okay. Manifest in what way? Legalism. That's true, they're good at that. Yeah. How, um, just thinking of your, you know, your average run-of-the-mill Pharisee that you, you know. How did he manifest this self-righteous, legalistic, what was the underlying pardon? hypocrisy? Although Paul claims that he was honest, <laughs> he might have been the only one. <laughs> Paul claims he was sincere. What's that? Fault finding? Yeah, they were pretty good at that too. Pride, ostentation. Okay, these are all good answers. Love of display. Okay. Not fair Pardon? Not fair Not fair yeah. They loved contentions in the marketplace. Okay, okay. These are good. This is, this is exactly what I wanted to get out of you, all these things. Now, I'm going to take a shot here at something and, and, and see if you, if you buy it or not. The underlying element to all of these I'm going to propose to you was man-made regulations. That's, that's how they hoped to attain their righteousness. That's how they manifested their legalism. That's how they produced these displays of, of superior goodness by, you know, pinning their little handkerchief on their, you know, whatever, and cracking the egg from their, whatever, all that stuff. Um, okay, you, you with me on that? Okay, so they, they made their rules, and then they enforced them. Which makes sense. I mean, why make a rule if you're not going to enforce it? You know? That's like speed limits in Montana or something. You know? What's the point? Uh, just, they, don't, they don't do that up there, right? Um, why make a rule if you're not going to enforce it? So that's what the Pharisees did. They made these rules. They were good at these rules. They had hundreds of rules. I'm thinking 
that that has something to do with the spirit of Pharisees. Well, anyhow, let's move on. Um, okay, so so why? And now, I mean, nobody was nobody was roughed up, nobody got shot or anything, you know. But what was Ellen White was 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 seriously seriously uh, troubled with all this, you know. And I don't want to sound too pessimistic, you know. But if if you've worked you know, I mean, if, you, if you've had much experience in like the corporate world, you know, I mean, there's always a little infighting going on. And this is nothing new. I mean, really, you know, what's the, what's the big deal on this? Well, there was background. A couple of quick ideas. As early as 1868, Sister White had written of the dangers of church members, looking to her and her husband for counsel when they should properly seek wisdom from God. Okay. You'll, you'll see why I'm touching on this. All who relied on others to direct them, and this is quoting now, walking by others' light, living on others' experience, feeling as others feel, acting as others act, would fail of everlasting life. Unless they become sensible of their wavering character and corrected, she warned. Okay? She's striking a, a note here. I, mean, I went back to see what I could find was the, the earliest reference along this line. That's, that's where I picked up, was 1868. One of the clearest chapters on the subject is in the Testimonies. It's a, it's a great chapter entitled Leadership. And it's all, you know, it's, it's all written to brother A or B or C or whatever the letter is. Okay? Um, and so just reading through the Testimonies, you might not know, but that's written to George Butler, General Conference President. That's the one, remember the one where she says, um, long delays tire the angels? That's the general conference president. She says, it's better to make a mistake than to sit there going wishy-washy all the time. Come on, George, get on the ball, you know? That was written to him. The main thrust of that, that whole thing is, is what's, the, what's the proper role of leadership in the church? How do you... How do you inspire others? How do you motivate others? How do you, you know, how do you make this thing work if you're a leader? Okay. Well, she just written that to him. She said, I think I've laid out this matter. This is back now to 1886. She's writing to them. She says, I think I've laid out this matter many times before you, but I see no change in your actions. Oops. There are men today who might be men of breadth of thought, might be wise men, men to be dependent upon, who are not such, because they have been educated to follow another man's plan. Give the Lord a chance to use men's minds. We are losing much by our narrow ideas and plans. And then she goes in and talks of how that's a major problem, even over there in Europe, right where she was at the time. Okay, so follow the, the connection here. Butler says... That guy should have never published that stuff, and I'm going to rein him in. And she says, give, give the Lord a chance to work on people's minds. Now, you can't expect them to be kowtowing to everything you say, George. That's not the role of leadership. Paraphrasing that. Okay? Um, at the same time, and there's a little dichotomy here, and this bothers some people. Doesn't bother me, makes sense to me, but whatever. At the same time, she acknowledged that Wagner was wrong. And she wrote him a nice letter and said, Brother Wagner, souls will be lost because of what you did. There's no point in, in, in exposing uh, a, a conflict between you and, and, and Brother um, 
Smith, no. Butler. If you have a point where you, you know, the Lord has led your mind differently, there's nothing wrong with that, but you've got to deal with it properly. Okay? You don't go making a big fuss out of it. She says, it's, it's a, a great thing, she says there are always some whose minds are so constructed that they will make this difference the entire burden of the message. You know, and they get all excited and ah, the, the law in Galatians is a great thing and now we have to fight about it. And so they did. <laughs> they commenced fighting with great vigor. Um, actually what happened is that the letter that of reproof that was sent to Jones and Wagner, a copy of it was sent intentionally to Brother Butler and to Brother Smith because she wanted them to learn the same lesson. Brother Butler and Brother Smith were good men who just happened to have the weakness of being human. And when they read that their enemy was reproved, it was cause for dancing in the streets. <laughs> and, and to them it meant, we must be right. You know, hey, how, how hard is this? This is a no-brainer. The guy just got slapped down for having you know, advanced this, this position, and obviously my position's right, so this is good. And they commenced attracting attention to exactly the same issue that Ellen White had just told Brother Wagner he should never have attracted attention to. And so, three months later, writing from Basel, Switzerland, Ellen White sends a letter to Butler and Smith. And this is really the one that set up 1888. She said, I have sent copies of letters written to Brother Wagner and Jones to Elder Butler in reference to introducing and keeping in front and making prominent subjects in which there are differences of opinions. I sent this not that you should make them weapons to use against the brother mentioned, but that the very same cautions and carefulness be exercised by you. I was pained when I saw your article in the review. For the last half hour, I have been reading the references preceding your pamphlet. Now notice this, this, I want to parse this next sentence here carefully. Now, my brother, things that you have said, many of them are all right. The principles that you refer to are right. She's reading Butler on the law. Okay. She says, yeah, that's right. But how this can harmonize with your pointed remarks, Dr. Wagner, I cannot see. I think you are too sharp. And in those days, sharp was not a judgment of one's mental acuity. <laughs> it had to do with whether you were being nice. <laughs> I think you are too sharp. And then when this is followed by a pamphlet published of your own views, be assured that I cannot feel that you are just right at this point to do this unless you give the same liberty to Dr. Wagner. I love the irony in this next one. Had you avoided the question, which you state has been done, <laughs> Had you avoided it, you say it has, but if you really had, it would have been more in accordance to like God to seem fit to give me. I want to see no Phariseeism among us. Huh. Pharisees again. The matter now has been brought so fully before the people by yourself as well as by Dr. Wagner that it must be met fairly and squarely in open discussion. He circulated your pamphlet. Now it is only fair that Dr. Wagner should have just as fair a chance as you have had. I think the whole thing is not in God's order. But brethren, we must have no unfairness. Well, that really, there were other events and developments along the way, but that, that more or less set up the eventual meeting in Minneapolis a year and a half or so later.
before they traveled to battle to Minneapolis Jones and Wagner and Willie White and a couple of other ministerial brethren whose names I don't recall right now they spent a weekend off at a little cabin somebody had someplace a little vacation retreat type of thing probably leftover gold miner cabin or something and um, they went over the law on Galatians Woolley had kind of asked that they do this because he really hadn't had a chance to read up on the whole thing. You can read his letters to um, to to Wagner in particular, and he said, you know, he, he was constantly apologizing. Well, you know, I'm sorry, Brother Wagner, I haven't had time to read your articles yet, but you know, one of these days I, I, I I'm holding on to them and I'll, I hope to sit down where I can give them justice, you know, etc. etc. We never really had. So he did the next best thing. He said, "Okay, let's do a crash course. This is, you know, I want to, I want to hear what these guys are saying. So let's let's go up here and have this meeting in the, you know, some cabin someplace." So they spent a week, uh, not a week, uh, a weekend, and it was just like a week and a half or something like that. After that, that they traveled from there to uh, Minneapolis for the uh, 1888 Ministerial Institute first, and then the General Conference session. Well, this was um, this little meeting, which all participants involved therein professed that it was entirely innocent and you know just a chance to get together and have a Bible study, was interpreted variously by another gentleman, um, a pastor by the name of Healy. And Pastor Healy was uh, very concerned that it appeared to him. Now that Wagner had managed to enlist Willie White's uh, support, and that they were planning how they were going to take this new and heretical doctrine and railroad it through the general conference session, and so he fired off a telegram back to Battle Creek. The uh, exact words of which I don't believe we have any longer, but the uh, thought was very clear. These guys are gunning for you. Get ready. <laughs> and so the brethren did. Butler was sick um, at the time. He was probably, we could it'd be fair to describe him, him as having had a nervous breakdown. He was pretty well wasted. He never made it to Minneapolis at all. But other gentlemen did. And so when they got to Minneapolis, first of all, they had a, a one-week, I think it was, or a 10-day or something like that, I think it was 10-day, ministerial institute. And during that time, A.T. Jones was asked to give a lecture on the, um, on the Ten Horns. Jones perhaps shot himself in the foot. And you know, you wonder sometimes how much, you know, when I do one stupid thing, how much do I, you know, how much does that cost me? You never know. During this time, uh, Jones uh, Jones was talking about the different tribes and whatnot. And this is pretty deep history. It's not just you know, it's it's not what you're going to find in your you know, tenth grade world history book. Okay. And and so they're wading through this stuff. And brother uh, brother Smith made some comment to the effect that well, he really hadn't studied this particular. Issue, you know, this this particular subsection of the whole thing, and Jones had studied this in great depth because he felt it was crucial to you know his case for the Alamanni, and Jones made the uh, the tactical error of saying, Brother Smith has just said that he doesn't know anything about this. 
I do, don't blame me for what he doesn't know. And Ellen White was on her feet and she said, Too sharp, Brother Jones, too sharp. I suspect that cost him dearly. That may well, with other factors contributing, that may have cost him eternal life. We walk on thin ice, don't we? <laughs> we can uh, we can dig a hole for ourselves so fast. Well, they made it through the thing on the horns, and there really wasn't much anybody could say on the horns because nobody else had the uh, nobody else had done the research. It was, it was like, well, I don't know, what do you think? I don't know. The only thing that really developed out of this was that in the boarding house where the ministers were staying, they uh, they began greeting each other in the hallways with questions like, are you a Hun or an Alamanite? Somebody asked Ellen White, what do you think about the horns? And she said, I think there are too many horns. <laughs> and she meant something very serious by that. You will find time after time after time, as you're reading what she has to say about the Minneapolis conference, she goes back to the unchristian attitude of contention. That was really basic to what her, her concerns developed into. Well, so they made it through this, uh, this little section. Okay. And then began the uh, general conference proper. And uh, um, E.J. Wagner was given the morning session each day to expound on righteousness by faith and consequently the law in Galatians. Um, it was anticipated by some that this would be handled as a, as a debate. And I guess they actually had two big blackboards up there with you know, formal debate style. One of them said, resolved that the law in Galatians refers to the ceremonial law. And that was signed by J.H. Morrison, I think it was. And then the other one was, resolved that the law in Galatians refers to the moral law. And it was supposed to be signed by E.J. Wagner. He never signed. He just real killjoy. He didn't. He wasn't into that particular approach. Um, and so he began a series of Bible studies. And several accounts, um, Jones for one, but also um, Butler talked about it, and Uriah Smith also talked about it in a letter, uh, and probably others mentioned how everything he was saying, everybody could have said amen to. But they all were positive that every little step he took was getting closer to that issue on the law in Galatians. And so they wouldn't say amen. Because they just knew that if we said amen here, I'm going to get myself in some sort of a logical trap, and I'm going to have to say amen there, and I ain't going to do it. <laughs> And Jones pointed out, thus they robbed themselves of the blessing which they might have had for fear of that which never came. Well, Wagner really didn't spend that much time on the Long Galatians, as near as we know. Now, one of the great things that has contributed to the whole mystery uh, episode here, nobody wrote down what Wagner said. Oh, man. 
what a pain. Um, there was, you know, it was it was the next <laughs> it was the next general conference that began taking verbatim accounts, you know, and they publish it in the general conference bulletin. Up through '88, they would just have a little note. Uh, Ellen Wagner improved the time at nine o'clock on a discussion of something that I did. Okay, well. <clears throat> So we spent the next hundred years or so arguing as to what in the world he actually said. Um, the good news is that that's probably pretty much been solved now. Okay, uh, a guy by the name of um, what was his name? Witten, I think. I think I can find his name here. Um, Da, 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 da. Yeah, Clinton. No, Clinton Whalen was his name. Okay, did a master's thesis. So it was, it was very good. Where he went and he got all the extant uh, information of, of everybody's diary and all this sort of stuff, and the notes that Willie White had taken, and he analyzed it and and tried to you know match verses here and this and this and this and this and everything. You know, it's almost the same as um, the book Christ or Righteousness. It's 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 pretty much the same flow. Okay, I don't know if you're okay. I bring a copy of that. I did, I did. Someplace here. There you go. Here's a an old printing of it. It's a good book. It has a little heresy in it, but it's not much. Um, <laughs> there's a little uh, a little um, oh what's the word I want? Um, yeah. Um, his section on the on the the incarnation of Christ includes a little bit of of a uh, ah, that's a theological term I can't think of anyhow the idea that Christ was not inter- eternally preexistent. There's some theological term for that that's escaping me right now. Semi-Arianism. There you go. Yeah. Okay. A little semi-Arianism in there. Ignore that. It's on page 18, I think. And, and the rest of the book's very good. Okay. <laughs> Um, and that's pretty much what he what he said, as near as we can tell from all these these records, pieced together by Brother Whalen. Thank you for that. Well, um, it was divisive. It was incredibly divisive. Brother Butler was still at home in Battle Creek, sick, and he wired up, "Stand by the old landmarks." Um, the uh, epitome of this occurred when a gentleman by the name of Elder Kilgore stood to his feet in a meeting one day and moved that the discussion of righteousness by faith be closed until Elder Butler was able to participate. Ellen White was seated on the platform at the time, rising to her feet. She said, this is the Lord's work. Does he want his work to wait for Elder Butler? The Lord wants his work to go forward and not wait for any man. There was no reply. The studies continued. But the next day, then we talked about sanitizing songs. You know? Well, I tell you, I'm not sure that we have the stomach for, for real, real close work anymore. The next day, Ellen White spoke on the issue. She said, from the platform, at the general conference session, she said, had Brother Kilgore been walking closely with God, he never would have walked on the ground as he did yesterday and made the statement he did in regard to the investigation that's going on. That is, that we must not bring in any new light or present any new argument because one man is not here. I never was more alarmed than at the present time. I want to tell you, my brethren, that it is not right to fasten ourselves upon the ideas of any one man. And she quotes Isaiah chapter 2. Cease ye for man. 
She used that verse a lot in the next few years. CC for man whose breath is in his nostrils. Basically saying, you know, they're human. You can't depend on them. Sorry, me too. She said, I seek decidedly because I want you to realize where you are standing. I want our young men to take a position, not because someone else takes it, but because they understand the truth for themselves. Elder Kilgore, I was grieved more than I can express to you when I heard you make that remark because I have lost confidence in you. Yeah, that's got to hurt. It's pretty, you know, it wasn't easy living with a prophet sometimes, I'll bet you anything. You know, we think it'd be, oh man, it'd be so nice to have a prophet. You know, it has its challenges too. But she said something here really drastic, and, and you know, bear in mind this is Ellen White, one of the three you know primary founders of this of this denomination, who had spent her life building up this organization. She said, "If the ministers will not receive the light, I want to give the people a chance. Perhaps they may receive it." Whoa, we're talking a complete bypass of the hierarchy. Uh, I don't mean that in a perjured sense, but you know, the, the structure that has been built up, of which she herself is a part, and of which she believes in. She says, this is important stuff. And if, perchance, the ministers reject it, or refuse it, or, or fail to pick it up and run with it, I'll go direct to the people. That's, that's pretty close to insurrection. You know? That's pretty serious stuff. Well, okay. The fight continued. <laughs> the meeting ended. It was very divisive. Um, variety of comments uh, that I could you know, read, perhaps, about you know how serious this whole thing was. Um, there was opposition to Jones and Wagner at Battle Creek. There's no question about that. It's historically documented. Um, and Ellen White was true to her word. She spent about the next year and a half traveling around uh, with Jones and Wagner, and going to camp meetings and you know other meetings, any meeting, pick a meeting, you know, make a meeting, whatever. She just spent her time traveling around preaching with these guys. Um, that was not well received. That wasn't appreciated much by the uh, some of the leadership at Battle Creek. Brother Butler. <coughs> was sick anyhow, he couldn't have carried the position any further. Ellen White said to um, her daughter-in-law, she said, Brother Butler's been in office for three years too long and has come to think of himself as nearly infallible. Time for, time for somebody new. Um, Butler, bless his heart, um, his wife was ill at the time. I, I, she, I think she'd had a stroke. I know that at, at some point, a little later anyhow, her right side was paralyzed. He moved down to Florida and for the next 13 years basically lived on a little orange plantation, farm, ranch, whatever they call them, and nursed his wife and brooded and tried to figure out how it was that he'd been run over by this train. Because he was a good man. And he was sincere as the day was long. And he was blind and he was wrong as the night was long. Um, and it took him 13 years to figure it out. Ellen White wrote later on in about 1903 or something like that. She said, Brother Butler is a new man. He's been learning lessons at the feet of Jesus. Remember that. 
Because somewhere along the line, you're going to run into somebody who's really got it wrong. Yeah, and the Lord still loves him. And he may just bring him back. He may. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so what was the big issue at Minneapolis? Okay, that's, that's roughly, quickly the story there, or what happened. What was the big issue? Well, on Galatians, obviously, right? Wrong. Nope, not it. Um, that's what a lot of people thought was the issue. Some people might have actually been focusing on the ten horns. You know, probably a lot of people thought it was kind of a combination of both. Those were distractions. Those were not the issue. Those were the um, those were the bait, if I can say that, that the devil used to uh, catch people. Ellen White <coughs> was eventually um, the Lord gave her um, gave her insight into the issue of the law in Galatians. Seven years later, <laughs> it's really great. Um, she she had a, a vision or a dream one night. She was in Australia at the time, and um, I, I guess she wrote it out probably that morning or something like that. And there there's a letter to Brother Butler that was actually uh, written up by um, Sarah McEntifer, I think. I, I mean, one of one of Ellen White's assistants. Ellen White didn't even actually write the letter herself. And it basically says, uh, we had some things that we thought we got into the last letter to you, but we see that we didn't, so we'll mail those now. And by the way, uh, Mrs. White had a, a dream last night in which the Lord explained to her that the law in Galatians was both the moral and the ceremonial law, but especially the moral law. I thought you might be interested to have a happy day. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's about all there is to it. You know, it's just a short little half-page type of thing. Um, that was seven years later. In between, Ellen White would say, as the law in Galatians, I have no burden and never have had. That wasn't it. What was she interested in? Because she went to bat for these guys. Uh, Jones and Wagner, uh, she said things about them that she never said about anybody else. Um, I'm just taking someone else's research at face value on this one, so I, I may be wrong. But um, anybody familiar with the Adventist Pioneer Library? Okay, good. They're uh, local here, from what I understand. <laughs> um, I knew Ray Foster a little bit, but I haven't. I really haven't been in touch with him. But they're right here in Loma Linda. Um, and they, uh, I, I just went searching on the internet because I, I know that um, I'd seen a little pamphlet and I think I had a copy of it and I lost it somewhere along the line, um, where someone had brought together something in excess of 200 statements from Ellen White where she seriously endorsed these guys. <laughs> okay, uh, She calls them the messengers of the Lord. You know, that's the title she used for herself. <laughs> You know, and, and there is no one else that she ever said what she said about Jones and Wagner. That's just, you know, they're in a, in a category of their own. Uh, you can pull this off the internet if you want. The uh, Adventist Pioneer Library, lest we forget. Took them four uh, four issues to get all 200 uh, quotations in. Um, but um, yeah, she went to bat for these two guys. Butler wrote to, them, wrote to her and called them fledglings. Everybody know what a fledgling is? 
It's a baby bird that doesn't have feathers yet. <laughs> it's just fledging, okay? These young whippersnappers, 38, 33. Yeah, they're getting younger. That used to be pretty old. Um, but... Um, what was the big deal? I mean, she risked. Actually, you know, in um, in the discussion of 1888 is the only time that I know of where Ellen White mentions what appears. Well, I'll just give you the statement that I, as I remember it. She said, "We had hoped that there would not be the necessity of another coming out of God's people." It sounds like. It sounds like <laughs> it sounds like an abandonment of the church, you know, like Luther out of Catholicism, like you know Wesley out of, like Adventists out of, like somebody out of Adventism, you know. Ooh, what was the issue, you know, that that led her to make incendiary statements like that? Well, I like the way she phrases it. <clears throat> this is what she said when she uh, it's okay. I won't read that. When uh, when she was commenting on Wagner's presentations, she said, "This is the first time I've heard it." And there were people who said, "Yeah, right, lady. We don't believe that." That was one of the more serious issues uh, at, at Minneapolis. They they, did, they didn't believe her. They didn't believe her. They were so convinced that Willie White and, by implication, his mother was going to railroad this thing through they did not believe her. They said, she's lying. Well, some of them were more generous than that. She said, well, she is getting kind of old. Maybe she's just seen up. Well, I could wish for that kind of senility. Um, and uh, this was a problem. This was, this was, this was serious you know, mutiny in God's church. She said... I, uh, I enjoyed Wagner's presentations, and much of what he said I think is very good. She said, there were some things that I disagree with. I think he's maybe wrong on here and there. But he always presented it as a Christian gentleman, unlike some who reacted to him in a different way. And she said, I was, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but my heart was thrilled with the portrayal of the matchless charms of Christ. Now, I'm not the, most, you know, the world's most sentimental guy. Okay? I just, you know, I'll be honest. Uh, matchless charms of Christ. And that's, that sounds nice. What did she mean? You know, is this something I'm supposed to get all teary-eyed? Is that what I'm supposed to do? I mean, what do you know? I mean, you know, just, what does that mean? The matchless charms of, is that, is that some sort of a gut-wrenching emotional thing? Is that what I'm supposed to be reacting to here? That really bothered me. Because, oh, uh, yeah. Admitting it as a fault rather than a virtue. I'm not the world's most sentimental kind of a guy. I just not. You know, I haven't learned to be that politically correct or something. I don't know. Um, and so you know, it bothered me. What am I missing? What am I missing in this matchless charms of Christ type of stuff? I would like to. Well, yeah. Um, I'm going to, to propose a couple of quick quick ideas. First thing I'd like to toss out is that, um, and this may make a certain amount of sense uh, to some of you med students here. If if you are trying to figure out um, 
say you had a, a doctor who was treating a patient and you had good confidence in the, you know, the, the nature or the, the skill of this doctor, this physician. The guy really knew what he was doing. He was top in his field. Okay? And let's just, you know, just for the sake of creating a hypothetical situation, the, the doctor is killed in a car accident and the patient is looking for somebody to continue his treatment. Okay? Um, but you couldn't find, since I'm making the whole thing up, you know, you couldn't find his records because the doctor had the records with him in the car and it burned. How's that? Okay. Anyway, so so the, the patient records are all gone, but you know that the doctor was treating this guy and he was doing the right thing. What would you do to figure out what the treatment was? I would like to suggest that you should go looking for the symptoms and find out what was wrong with the patient. Does that make sense? It seems kind of basic to me. Okay, if you can if you can figure out for sure, you know what the what the um, what the illness was or the uh, the malady, then probably you could replicate the uh, the other physician's line of treatment. I'm thinking that makes sense. I'm not a doctor. Here is the clearest statement that I found on what Jones and Wagner's treatment was you know what indicated it right I use that word right okay it's indicated okay she says this now it has been Satan's determined purpose to eclipse the view of Jesus and lead men to look to man and trust to man and be educated to expect help from man for years the church has been looking to man and expecting much from man. It's almost getting repetitive, you know what I'm saying? But not looking to Jesus, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Yeah, because of what I just said. Yeah. Therefore, God gave to his servants, Jones and Wagner, a testimony that presented the truth as it is in Jesus, which is the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines. Okay. Why did God send the message of 1888? Because we were looking to man. And not looking to Jesus, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. I thought it was the law in Galatians. Yeah. It's really not. <laughs> But Ellen White recognized in what Wagner and Jones were presenting something else. And she never had a burden on the Long Galatians, and she really didn't care much about the horn thing. There was something else. There was the portrayal of the matchless charms of Christ, which I don't think has to be I'm not saying it can't be, and I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but it's certainly not entirely just sentiment. Jesus is a very practical guy. And the matchless charms of Christ are extremely practical. And every piece of help that the church had been looking to man for inappropriately. Now, there is a place for other people, don't get me wrong, okay? But everything that she was talking about there where we had been looking to man instead of looking to Christ, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered, we should have been looking to Christ. And we could have received the necessary help from Christ. Does that make sense? It's not a real complicated thought. 
What I'm, what I'm suggesting here is essentially that we're, we shift our viewpoint. And the conflict now is not so much doctrinal as it really is almost more administrative. I know that may sound heretical and it may sound kind of weird. Because you no doubt have heard, to whatever extent you've heard, that Jones and Wagner were preaching righteousness by faith. And that's true. And so you would, you know, with all due respect, say, yeah, well, what are you talking about with this administrative thing? Let me approach this one other angle here. And it was in that last sentence as well, statement. A testimony presented the truth as it is in Jesus, which is the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines. And then uh, later in a Review and Herald article, um, she said how people were writing to her and saying, don't you think we're overemphasizing righteousness by faith? Just beginning? Don't we, aren't we going to get distracted? And she said, no. No, no, no. No, we're not going to overemphasize it. It's okay, relax. And some people said, um, well, she said uh, others had written to her and asked, probably rhetorically and probably expecting a no answer, I'm guessing. Okay. They said, is righteousness by faith the third angel's message? And she said, yes, it is, in verity. Now, where do you find the third angel's message? And what does the third angel's message say? It's not politically correct. It says if you get the mark of the beast, you burn. <laughs> That's the third angel's message, isn't it? You know? First angel's message, give glory to God, right? Worship Him. Okay, second angel's message, Babylon has fallen. Third angel's message, mark of the beast, you burn, buddy. That's it. Okay, now, all we need to do is correlate this here. It's not hard. Bobby went to the store with his mommy and saw the pretty grapes and took one and ate it. And he got home and his conscience convicted him. And so he got out his penny bank, piggy bank, and he took out his pennies, and he confessed to mommy and said, oh, mommy, I stole a grape. And he took his pennies and he ran back down to the grocery store and he paid whatever a grape is worth. And he comes back and that night he kneels down and he says, dear Jesus, I'm so sorry I stole the grape. Please forgive me. And he has now experienced righteousness by faith. Right? Justification. Explain to me what the connection with the uh, lake of fire is. In verity. No, I'm, I'm happy for an answer. <laughs> yeah, think about it, you know. Ellen White said, this is the third angel's message. This is... This is fire and brimstone, brother. The matchless charms of Jesus. Justification by faith. Really? Is there a connection here? Yeah, there's a connection. Let me tell you what the connection is. This is this is my this is my best take on it. Here's the connection. Righteousness by faith. Now now if I'm gonna put this. Yeah, I won't put it. That's easy. Okay. Um, 
that's not one way to solve a problem. Uh, we'll come to that point later. Um, righteousness by faith requires faith, okay, which is an acceptance of God's word and a belief in His power and confidence in His love. Okay? Those are things that you can probably relate to and say, yeah, before I'm going to trust my whole you know, heart, mind, soul, and being, whatever, and, and depend on this for righteousness, uh, I, I, I have to have faith in God and believe His word, etc., etc., etc. Okay? And when you believe that, when you have faith, you can... Approach the Lord for forgiveness. There will come a day when the hardest thing in the universe to believe is that God forgives you. That day will come. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay. Um, we could go into discussion of that, but I'll spare you that one for right now. Just Humor me on this one for right now. Okay? That will be the hardest thing in the universe to believe. It has to be. Let's give you one quick partial explanation of that. It has to be. Because that's God's demonstration to the rest of the universe that these people are safe to save. Okay? And so it has to be the absolute hardest, you know. Actually, I will fill in one little detail. There's a fantastic quotation that only appears once in all the spirit of prophecy. Um, I would love to mass produce it several times over and just kind of spread around more. Um, Signs of the Times, November 27, 1892, something like that. I'll dig that one up for you. Um, she's talking about the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's, it's very parallel to the passage that eventually went into Page, um, Page and Prophets, okay, on the, the night of wrestling, that chapter, okay. But she makes one little comment there that doesn't show up in the book and doesn't show up anywhere else. And she says, to the righteous in their distress. No, to, to, to the righteous as it appeared to Jacob in his distress. I'm mangling that quote somehow. But you know, it appears to them, I don't know, something like this. As it appeared to Jacob in his distress that God himself has become their avenging enemy. Okay? The time of Jacob's trouble is not like being burned at the stake. Being burned at the stake is a piece of cake. Comparatively, because you have God's, you have the the sense of God's. Hopefully, anyhow, uh, there are some people who watch the stake for no good reason whatsoever. And what speaks to them as deluded enthusiasts and misguided fanatics. I think she says, you know, yes. oh yes, if I get burned at the stake, I'm guaranteed to go to heaven. Ah, whatever, anyhow. Um, but if you, you know, if, if the Lord calls you to martyrdom, okay you have the assurance of his love. Okay? In the time of Jacob's trouble, to all appearances, just like Christ on the cross, there's a, an absolute, almost a one-to-one -one parallel. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I've done everything. I've, 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 I've ruined my life. I've put everything on the line. These guys want to kill me. I've done it all for you, and now you stab me in the back. It's going to appear that way. I don't know how. Kind of fascinating. But it will appear that way. And then the test is, do you have faith? Though he slay me, 
yet will I trust him. Job is another excellent parallel. Anyhow, okay. Now, here is the connection as I'm spinning it. This is political season. Between righteousness by faith and the third angel's message. Third angel's message. Okay. The third angel's message is, 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 a, is a, it's a simple portrayal of, of a classic rock and hard place situation. The world says, you do this or we kill you. And God says, oh, by the way, you do that, I kill you. Take your pick. <laughs> what you've got there is a test of what you regard as the ultimate reality of the universe. <laughs> is the ultimate reality of the universe that which you can see and sense and hear and feel around you? Or is it God whom you can neither see nor hear nor touch? Righteousness by faith requires that kind of a sense of God's authority. This is the connecting, this is the only connecting link that I've been able to find. And you know, I, it would be hard for you to convince me that there's absolutely no value in what I'm saying. There's, there's, there are no doubt many other points of view and other, other you know, perfectly valid points. But this is the one I'm drawing on right now. This is why she said to the young minister, she said, I want you to take a position not because someone else takes it. Okay? She says, you can't depend on Brother Butler. You can't stop everything because there's one guy down in Battle Creek. Come on. She says, I was never more alarmed in my life than to depend on one man. You're kidding. She was a Protestant, remember? Um... A few quick thoughts along this line. God designs that men shall use their minds and consciences for themselves. He never designed that one man should become the shadow of another and utter only another sentiments. But this error has been coming in among us. That a very few are to be mind, conscience, and judgment for all God's workers. The foundation of Christianity is Christ our righteousness. Men are individually responsible to God and must act as God acts upon them, not as another human mind acts upon their mind. For if this method of indirect influence is kept up, souls cannot be impressed and directed by the great I Am. Okay? God reserves some things strictly for himself. He doesn't have a chain of command on some issues. All the chain of command does is make it so... You get no commands. <laughs> you cannot be impressed by the great I am. Um, this connection with righteousness by faith, Jones and Wagner, etc., etc., it, it occurs probably even more than the 200 times that Jones and Wagner are are endorsed. It's 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 constant through the. Are you familiar with the four volumes of the 1888 materials? Yeah, it is just yeah, it's just incredible. You read through that. And if you're not careful, you could become some sort of a revolutionary. Because she was having to, to, she was writing so much at that point, trying to encourage people to think for themselves and not be, you know, little puppets in the, in the mechanism of the church. Okay? 
Um, here's another quick comment that kind of makes that tie too. Elder Butler thought that everybody must yield to him. He came to think that he must command everything. This destroyed his brain power. That'd be fun to do some, you know, some sort of uh, medical research on that. Start running some. What's the F in the F MRI? Is that functional? Is that what it is? MRI, you know, it's those uh, real-time MRIs. You know, watch some guy thinking that everybody has to listen to them and watch it destroy his brain power. I don't know. It's he was only a finite instrument. He could not impart what he had not received. Men have placed Elder Butler where God should be placed, and by so doing have ruined their own religious experience and also ruined Elder Butler. And the church was becoming strengthless, Christless, because they glorified men when every jot of glory should be given to God. We had been for years taught to look to man and expect great things from man. Therefore, God sent. Right? God's servants are not to be treated as the servants of the conference, to be bound and released at their pleasure. We've got a chance. I, you know, remember what I said, you know, if, you, if you just focus on this, you could become really overly independent-minded. Okay? There's a balance in all this. But... We've got a chance to do something for those who love him and do not impose upon them rules and regulations which, if followed, will leave them destitute of the grace of God as were the hills of Goboa without due or rain. Remember that other quote about we've been preaching the law, the law, the law until the dry as the hills of Goboa? Yeah. Your <laughs> Man, she could be blunt. You heard very many resolutions. This is written to some conference guy. I don't remember, you know, uh, probably a local conference officer or something. I'm not sure. It says, your very many resolutions need to be reduced to one-third their number. And great care should be taken as to what resolutions are framed. Oh, I have too many good ones to read here. Let's see. Here's one. Satan's methods tend to one end. To make men the slaves of men. When this is done, confusion and distrust, jealousies and evil surmisings are the result. Hmm. The great sin which has been entering the ranks of Seventh-day Adventists is the sin of exalting man and placing him where God should be. This was demonstrated at Minneapolis. That link is there over and over again. There are men holding responsible positions and many think that they would prove traitors to the cause and the work of God should they intimate that these, intimate that these men were in the wrong sometimes. It's a blind loyalty that can set in. You can't tell me the brother Butler's wrong, brother. That's, no, that's disrespectful. But what if he is wrong? Here is a, a metaphorical illustration, which is not the sort of thing you would normally think of Ellen White as of employing. It's very graphic. It comes at the end of this paragraph. I'll alert you when we get to it. Men in responsible positions have manifested the very attributes that Satan has revealed. They have sought to rule minds, to bring their reason and their talents under human jurisdiction. There's been an effort to bring God's servants under the control of men who have not the knowledge and wisdom of God or an experience under the Holy Spirit's guidance. Here we go. Listen to these next two sentences. Principles have been born that should never have seen the light of day. Okay? 
catch the imagery here, born. Okay. The illegitimate child should have been stifled as soon as it breathed the first breath of life. <laughs> oh, that's, that's graphic. Yeah, okay. The kid's born, strangling now. She was not in favor of this. The spirit of domination is extending to the presidents of our conferences. If a man is sanguine of his own powers, sanguine in that usage would basically mean something like um, confident or maybe overconfident. Okay. If a man is sanguine of his own powers and seeks to exercise dominion over his brethren, feeling that he is invested with authority to make his will the ruling power, the best and only safe course is to remove him. Lest great harm be done and he lose his own soul and imperil the souls of others. This disposition to lord it over God's heritage will cause a reaction unless these men change their course. This is pretty, pretty tough stuff she's saying. Well, she's talking about a conference president. It's exactly what she did actually with, you know, when, when Brother Butler was unavailable uh, for another term, they, uh, they tapped a gentleman by the name of O.A. Olson, who was a good man but was not man enough for the job at Battle Creek at the time. And, let's see, 88, 93, probably five years later, Ellen White had to just virtually insist, just listen, don't put him back in. Don't put him back in. You'll ruin his, you'll, 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 you'll lose his soul, and you'll ruin the church. We need somebody different. Because he'd fallen for the same problems. Olson also learned lessons, came around. I have hopes. You know, I think all these guys are going to be saved. Don't get me wrong. I'm negative here. Um, and one last, I should quit. You guys have been very patient. I will uh, close out with this little thought here. Um, to save reading a couple long paragraphs, let's just say that she's talking about how people have depended on, on men when they, they really should not have, and in ways and to a degree that they should not have. Okay. <clears throat> it is a mistake to make men believe that the workers for Christ should make no move save that which has first been brought before some responsible man. She's saying, okay, there's a time and place, and you got to be able to just, you know, this is something obvious, it needs to be done, let's get it done, let's do it. You don't have to, you know, cover your backside by getting, you know, six committees lined up behind you, okay? Now, this is, this is, this is fascinating. She says, though at first the brother may be reluctant to take so great a responsibility as that of being a counselor. Now, this is in the improper sense. There's a, there's a proper kind of counsel, okay? But the whole context here is in the improper sense. So she says, though at first he may be reluctant to take so great a responsibility as being a counselor to his brethren, if he does it, he will finally encourage the very dependence that he once lamented. It's addictive. It's poisonous and it's addictive. A great example of that is Pharaoh. Okay? There's something addictive about having a slave. It's kind of cool. I'm sure it must be. You know, just, hey, do that. You know? God never intended that. And it's addictive. And this guy was so addicted 
that he went walking into the middle of the Red Sea <laughs> trying to trying to get another fix. I mean, that's really dumb. You know, you got ten plagues, your kid's dead, and now you're going to take your army down in between these two walls of water. Now that's not smart. That's just not smart. It's addictive. If he does it, he will finally encourage the very dependence that he once lamented. He will come to feel grieved if matters are not brought to his attention. He will want to understand the reason for movements made in the cause that have no connection with his branch of the work. Hey, don't be doing that, man. You've got to talk to me before you, Curtis. Yeah. Don't be doing that. Yeah. Got to clear things. Okay. Notice this. I love this next one. It may be argued that the Lord gives special wisdom to those to whom he has entrusted grave responsibilities. Okay? Follow the thought there. Says, yeah, but, 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 but this guy's, you know, he's Coffee's prison. Don't you think the Lord's going to give him special wisdom? The Lord does give special wisdom to him who has sacred trusts. If the human agent, moment by moment, makes God his only helper, this would be the whoever is in the, in the position of authority here. No, and this can be anybody, right? I'm not picking on conference officers. That's mostly who she was writing to just because that's who she dealt with. But this can be a teacher, you know, a pastor, probably even to some degree parents can also assume an inappropriate level of control or inappropriate control in certain areas or something. Okay. It may be argued the Lord gives special wisdom. Yes, the Lord does give special wisdom. If this authority figure, if the human agent, moment by moment makes God his only helper and walks humbly with him, God will then give light and knowledge and wisdom in order that his human agent may be able to guide his brethren who would look to him for counsel as to their duty. And here is the light and knowledge and wisdom he will give them. In a clear and forcible manner, he will point them to a source that is untainted and pure from the defects and errors that are so apparent in humanity. He may, for it is his privilege, refuse to be brains and conscience for his brethren. That's the wisdom that God gives to those who hold sacred office. Is there a place for counsel? Of course. Is there a place for advice? Yes. Does God reserve sacred reins of control on your life? You bet. An indirect channel of influence is no channel. What you need is the matchless terms of Christ. To recognize that He, through whatever means He may choose, is the answer for every little problem and the medium-sized problems and the really, really big problems. He'll take care of them. That doesn't mean that you won't ever talk to somebody else. It doesn't mean that you won't ask for advice. It doesn't mean you won't ask for counsel. But it does mean that you will never, as people did with Elder Butler, put him where God should be. We have a name for people that are where God should be. It's not a compliment. <laughs> um, <laughs> Final statement. And this is all in the context of Minneapolis. The education that should be given to all is that they should exercise faith, that they should go to God in earnest prayer and learn to think for themselves, to meet difficulties and plow through them by the help of God is a lesson of the highest value. 
Let us then remember that our weakness and inefficiency are largely the result of looking to man, of trusting in man, to do those things for us that God has promised to do for those who come to him. When I look at the young people of the Adventist Church who show some very promising signs of taking seriously God's calling for them, I hope that I will always see A, uh, a close attention to the matchless terms of Christ. I can't tell you what that means in every detail in your life. Because if I could, I would have taken the place of Christ. And I don't really want to do that. Because it would ruin, or no, it would, I believe the word was destroy my brain power. I don't have any extra of that to spare. Um, 1888 didn't end in 1888. Tomorrow afternoon, I'd like to um, explore some ramifications of it down through the um, oh, next about 115 years or something like that. Um, it's been a very interesting history down through that time span. And we can see the basic issue, what to me? You know, and, and you are not my enemy if you don't agree with me. Okay? But I do have many other statements I'd like to share if you don't agree with me. Uh, <laughs> but to what, what to me is, is really the basic issue of 1888. And righteousness by faith. And justification, things like that. And it, it has played its role all the way down. And it continues to do so today. And so I would invite you back um, to, uh, to look at that tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow morning... I'm going to be talking very rapidly because I have a, a lot, a long story I want to try and tell very quickly. Um, a, a fascinating episode in Adventist history about 104 years ago in the state of Indiana where we had what we refer to as the Holy Flesh Movement and the fascinating events that transpired there. Uh, shall we? Bow our heads for prayer. Father, we, we can scare ourselves silly if we look seriously at the end of time. And even catch a small glimpse of what measure of faith will be needed to finish your work to do your will, to vindicate your character. But Lord, we would leave that in your hands and simply ask that you will work with us day to day on the very, very small issues and challenges that we now face. We pray that you would show us the matchless terms of Jesus, that we will find in him the source of supply and the answer to all of our perplexities. We pray that we might indeed experience righteousness by faith and that we would take that faith far beyond the simple necessity of forgiveness of sins and employ that same faith in every phase of our lives. We thank you for the Sabbath. We pray that you would bless us in its hours now. In Jesus' name, amen.